0: Let's return to the 11th chapter of Revelation. Verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. This is a word of the Lord. If you're visiting this morning... Uh, This message will make sense uh, in that it's self-standing, but it's inextricably entwined with what has come before. So if you hear this and you're saying, I would like to understand this better, you may go on our website and begin with Revelation chapter 1 and listen to the messages up to this very message today. The message today has much to do with what comes in the next two chapters. I'll mention that uh, in our our message this morning. It's one of the reasons that uh, I'm taking time to, to preach this message the way I'm preaching it. Because it has so much to do with chapters 12 and 13. Also and this just it strikes me every week but really this week we see the truth that scripture is is not this truth this truth this truth or this story this story this story and they they're they're not connected i'm amazed every week at the unity that I see in scripture, how this passage this morning has to do with what David wrote in the Psalms and has to do with what was written in Genesis. It's, It's all tied together, all tied together, and we'll see that this morning. But before we do, let's pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, as your priest this morning, we bow before you. You've not only called us to be priests or prophets taking the gospel and taking Jesus out into the world. You called us to be priests to bring the world back before you in prayer. Father, we come with heavy hearts this morning. Many tears have been shed by many members of this church this week for John and Kaki Cruz and for their daughter Kate. Father, we pray that you would bless John Cruz. Pray that, Father, his eyes would be focused, his heart would be focused. On the place you have prepared for him. We pray that you will teach him in these hours and these days to look forward with anticipation. Cause him to be a comfort to Khaki. Cause Khaki to be a comfort to him. Father, we pray for Kate. We pray that you would bring healing to her. Bless John Morrison as he cares for his precious wife. Our Father, we pray for College Hill Presbyterian this morning. We thank you for their incredible history, for their long history. and We pray that you would restore that. That was just a church building. Father, your church there did not burn. The building burned. Your church, I'm sure, is meeting somewhere this morning in Oxford that College Hill, Presbyterian. Your your people there, they're meeting. And we pray that, Father, you would give them strength for these days, for this year. We pray that you restore their building to them. Our Father, now as we open your word, we know that John Sartell cannot teach or preach so that will make any difference in our lives. No one who stands behind this desk can preach like that. But once more, we cast ourselves upon your grace. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would change us. For some, it will be a continuing change, but Father, for some, it might be That first change that Christ brings. But whatever, it will be by your power and by your voice. And so we are your children this morning. Saying, Father, teach us. Tell us a story one more time. Explain this passage, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen when the reign of Christ over the nations is manifested. This message this morning is a preamble to what we'll see in the next couple of weeks, two or three weeks, four weeks, in chapters 12 and 13. The fifth and sixth trumpets that we saw a few weeks ago Introduced a new element to God's judgment and to the conflict between God and evil. We hadn't seen this before in Revelation. Well, what is it that it introduced? Those trumpets, trumpets 5 and 6, introduced the power of the demonic spiritual forces for the first time in Revelation. All through the seals, as we looked at each seal removed, we did not see this demonic power. But here it came with the fifth and sixth trumpets. One of the themes of the Bible, one of the themes of Revelation, is the spiritual war taking place between God and Satan. In chapters 12 and 13, we will see the forces of spiritual evil Evil at work in the world with more intensity that we see anywhere else in Scripture. This morning, after an intriguing interlude that we've covered in the last few weeks, that was recorded in chapters ten and eleven, we see the seventh angel blow the trumpet. At the sound of the trumpet, loud voices sing of the great triumph of Christ. Go back to the sixth seal. And remember, it brought us through history from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. That sixth seal brought us right up to the return of Christ. And the focus in the removal of the sixth seal, was God's judgment from which no one can escape. Well, in the seventh trumpet, we come again right up to the return of Christ. But the focus is not on that ultimate justice, that incredible justice to which the sixth seal brought us. The focus with that seventh trumpet and the return of Christ, is the focus on the reign of Christ that is finally made manifest in this world. The hallelujah course of Handel's Messiah is based on what happened at the sound of the seventh trumpet. Did you know that? In 1741, Frederick Handel composed the Messiah, in 24 days. This work was his passion. He often forgot to eat. He would be found weeping as he composed the music for these different verses from Scripture. It is usually performed in the Christmas season, but originally it was composed for Easter. Now, what's the high point? What's the high point of Handel's Messiah? Hallelujah course. And what's the centerpiece of the hallelujah course? This I bet you don't know. There's all these hallelujahs. In fact, I'm going to just read them. You're going to say, why are you doing this? I want you to understand this. Here's this great body, maybe Handel. Thought about the courses, a hundred thousand angels in glory singing, and it's so. Here it is, hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth, hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. And then these words. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's why all of the hallelujahs are there. That's why they're singing, hallelujah. It was based on Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Now, when the monarchs of England come to Westminster Abbey to be enthroned when they're crowned, they stand before an altar. And do you know what's written on that altar? Do you know what's etched into that altar? Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. But they made a mistake in their translation. This is what's etched into the the altar. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's not what we read this morning. In Revelation 11.15 we read the kingdom singular. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we're just going to focus on those few words. And we could spend, I could preach ten more messages just on that verse. And I know you're saying, please don't. You know. But you're going to see in a moment how huge this is. And why all the hallelujahs. And why handle focused his greatest peace in Messiah on that one verse. All the kingdoms, empires, and nations of this world are counted in that verse as one kingdom. Do you believe this is an inerrant word of God? This is the inerrant word of God. And he didn't say the kingdoms of this world. He said the kingdom of this world. It's one kingdom. With their different geographical boundaries, with their different kings, their different presidents and rulers, dictators, they're all considered one kingdom. Now, for the most part, these kingdoms, and this kingdom of kingdoms, has rebelled against God. They rebelled against His word, against the reign of Christ. Yes. Christ is reigning now, the true king. But but at his return, his reign will be made obvious. Obvious in a way that the world cannot refute. See, right now the world refutes that he's reigning. When he makes his reign manifested, that will be over. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 24 on your scripture sheet. Then comes the end when he, that, be, that's, that being Jesus, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. And after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Since his ascension, we've seen this over and over again in Revelation, he has been reigning. Remember, he holds a scroll. And what is the scroll? It's the deed of ownership He's raised dumb nations. We've seen that. He's destroyed nations. We've seen that. He has judged nations. That's a judgment with a small j. But with Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, there is a final reckoning, a final judgment. Verse 17 in Revelation 11 ends, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, he's been reigning all along. But this says he's taken power. He's, he's taken the throne and began to reign. What's he saying? He's made it obvious. He's made it obvious. But he was reigning all the time. Remember what were the, one of the last, in, at the end of Matthew, one of the last things he said to the disciples. He looked at them as he was about to send them worldwide. And what did he say? He said, all authority. All authority, not some authority. All authority. In heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. I'm now reigning. But it's permissive. But it's reigning in a permissive way. He's permitted our rebellion. He's permitted our sin. He's permitted our desire for self-rule. Even as he's built his church to the ends of the earth. Through all this kingdom of the world. He permitted rebellion. But with Revelation eleven fifteen 15, that day's over. He's making his reign manifested upon the earth. Now, the permissive reign, this permissive reign is acknowledged in verse 18. It says in verse 18 of Revelation 11, the nations raged. Now, that's a direct Reference. Reference. To Psalm 2. When John wrote that, he would have said, That's Psalm 2. It says the same thing. So we're going to take time to look at that for just a moment. Psalm 2 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, this is what he says the nations do. This single kingdom that's made up of a lot of kingdoms. What does they do? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against what? Against the Lord and against his anointed saying let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That was what was happening in David's day when he wrote this. That's what was happening when Jesus was on earth and talking to his disciples. Rome was trying to cast off the Word of God, trying to cast off God, trying to cast off the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's happening today. The kings and nations have cried out since the beginning, we want autonomy. Let's throw off the chains that bind us, the chains of his will, the chains of his written word, the chains of his command, the chain. of... With his reign cast it off. What's God? I love this. I love this. I remember when I was a child and I heard this for the first time. It was the first time I've heard, and you know, I'd heard in all the preaching I heard, in all the Scripture, it's the first time I heard that God laughs. So it says, He who sits in the heavens, the Lord holds them in derision. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is a righteous laughter of God at the ludicrous attempt of men to dethrone the Almighty. Think about it. For mere creatures who are completely dependent upon him for every aspect of their lives, for them to do battle with the omnipotent, folks, it's it's just absurd. I was thinking about this this week. You know how when you're thinking about something and, and, and your mind flashes back to years before? Well, my mind this week flashed back to 50, about 54 years ago. We were having dinner with Ralph and Becky Bennett in their apartment in seminary. We lived across the hall from each other in seminary. And we were having dinner together. Their 11-month-old daughter was in her baby bed in the next room. She was supposed to be going to sleep. That was her parents' plan. That was her parents' order. She knew that's what they wanted. But she didn't want that. She was trying to cast off the chain. She was trying to cast off the will of her parents. And we're sitting there. And she was one loud baby. I mean, at 11 months, she was just, and she wasn't in pain, she wasn't hungry, she was mad. She had pulled herself up and was facing the door, which was closed, because when we walked in, we could see that she was up. And she was crying with all her might. Suddenly, Ralph was at the end of the table. And he, lay, he sits back, and he smiles. And yeah, I knew something was coming. And he said, Colette! Colette! And I mean, in an instant, she got quiet. Her dad was speaking to her. Colette! And then Ralph finished the sentence. Colette! Colette! Cry louder. I can't hear you. And I, she just ripped it again. That was in a very small way what God was doing in his derision in Psalm 2. The idea that any king or nation or group of kings or nations could conquer and dethrone God himself was ridiculous. Our last lesson ended, last the sermon last week, with, ended with God always has the last word. Well, we might also say that he has the last laugh. It really is ridiculous, this scene on this earth, when a godless culture, with all of its education and graduate schools and all of its science, with all of its vast knowledge, with all of its material wealth, with all of its vaunted social and political and military might, decides that God is archaic and he must be put in the corner of some dusty museum at the amusement of an elite world. Enlightened culture. Well, let me tell you, that derision will be, laughing at God, will be short-lived. But his laughter and derision will be remembered for an eternity. But there's more here from God than a righteous derision. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and he's talking to Jesus here. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces with a like a potter's vessel. Now folks, Revelation eleven fifteen. Just write this down. Revelation eleven fifteen is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm two. It's, it's, it's a fulfillment. When John wrote that, he says, Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You don't think God's saying that today? Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So, in Revelation eleven, the true King has returned to bring an end to their rage and bring a final reckoning. The time has come. We read in Revelation eleven eighteen, the time has come for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Now, in the Hallelujah course. The word hallelujah is sung 56 times. What does that word mean? It comes from the Hebrew word hallel, meaning praise, and yah for Yahweh, meaning God or Lord. Praise God. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. And just as a response, remember what happened when the God of all creation was in, in chapter Revelation chapter 4, what happened in heaven as we beheld the creator of all of this creation? All of heaven worshipped. What happened when the lamb stepped forth and took the scroll? All of heaven worshipped. Well, here in the 11th chapter, what happens? At that statement in 1115, the 24 elders sitting on the thrones, fell down in worship. Now, what's it mean there when it says, speaks about the Lord and his Christ. Now, the Lord in the New Testament usually means Jesus, doesn't it? In Revelation, usually when you read the word Lord, it's speaking about God the Father. Christ is his son. Christ is his anointed. Christ is his Messiah. Now, I want to back away as we we come to to the last part of this message. I want to back away and clearly see the several biblical truths we must know if we're to understand God and Satan and the world in which we live. If you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand these three truths. First, all the kingdoms of this world are marked by rebellion against God. All the kingdoms of this world are marked by a rebellion against God. Look again at that very first verse in that section, the the verse 15. The kingdom, or no, excuse me, yes, the kingdom of God. The world. All the all, as we said, all the kings of this world are counted as one. The kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of Persia, the Kingdom of Russia, the Kingdom of China, the Kingdom of the United States. Here God speaks of them as being one kingdom. All of them are united in one way in their rebellion against God. In Scripture There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Now, we cringe when we think of the United States, as great as this nation is. We cringe when we think of the nation of Great Britain being lumped together with kingdoms like Rome under the Caesars or like Marxist Russia, or like Marxist China. Well, the rebellion against God in the nations can be measured, can be measured by different intensities. Sometimes rebellions with a greater intensity. The United States was not marked in her earlier years with an avowed purpose of destroying any idea of God, his word, and his church. That was the purpose from the very beginning of Marxist Russia and Marxist China and still is today. But if we look back at this country, even in the beginning, we practice the awful abomination of slavery. Now God's word, because this country had a Judeo-Christian tradition, an ethic and worldview, that held our rebellion in check. We were dominated by this Judeo-Christian world and life view. Yet, yet we were like and we are part of the kingdom of this world. And we were a sinful nation. And we have come to a time in our history when we're seeing most every institution of our culture is making known their hatred of God and hatred of his word. We see it every day, every week. Now, I'm sure you've heard this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because I read it this week. I read it when I was sitting at my desk. Reading. I mean writing this. And here this appears. I'm just going to read it to you. This came. By way of a newspaper article. I'm quoting. The Harpeth Hall School. This is in Nashville. A very elite girls school. The Harpeth Hall School has changed their admissions to allow biological males who identify as female to enroll. According to a letter sent to the alumni, the institution made the decision to create a philosophy that provides great, greater clarity and transparency around their gender identity at their school. Now folks, you can spend this any way you wish. But there is one unchangeable truth about this move. It is rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against his word. And it's a rebellion against his reign. And it's where our country is today. And you know it. So all the kings of this world are marked by rebellion against God. Secondly, all the kings of this world are inextricably entwined with the rule of Satan. Satan. Wow. Where do you get that? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 4 4 on your scripture sheet. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, who's that? He wasn't speaking about the Creator, he wasn't speaking about God and the Father. Abraham, Isaac, and jacob the God and Father. No, no. The God of this world there is Satan. Well, where did he get that? That Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. Where did, where did Paul get that? He got it from John 12, 31. Look at John 12, 31 on your search machine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Did you see that? Now the ruler of this world. He's talking about Satan. What did Jesus call Satan? The ruler of this world. He's identified with the nations. got a question for you this morning. After being anointed by John the baptizer as Messiah. What was the first action that Jesus took as Messiah of Israel? You would think that he would go to the temple and preach. Or he'd go to the palace and sit on the throne. Or that he would go heal 10,000 people. He did none of that. His first act after he was anointed Messiah. He went into the wilderness to confront Satan. Now why in the world would he do that? Why would that be his first act? In this event. Of Jesus going into the wilderness to confront Satan. You're witnessing the holy aggression of the Son of God and Son of Man against Satan. Or we could say you're witnessing the holy aggression of the Messiah against Satan, or you're witnessing the holy aggression of the second Adam against Satan. You want me to prove it to you? Look at Luke 4, verses 1 and 2. As Luke describes this Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so he's full of the Spirit. Returned from Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit of the living God, where for 40 days he was tempted by Satan. There was Christ fasting, gaunt, intense. There was Satan resplendent, radiating power and purpose. This was not some comic character with horns and a tail. We're tempted to look at this, though, and think that the whole thing was set up by Satan. Poor Jesus. In the midst of a devastating fast, and Satan attacks. Make no mistake about it, people. This was not Satan attacking a passive Jesus. Notice again how verse 1 began there in Luke 4. The presence and the leadership of the Holy Spirit is stripped. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from Jordan and led by the Spirit in the desert. Here's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Here's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and together at the right at the beginning of the Messiah's mission, the inaugural event, go find Satan. Too many people read this and think Satan saw Jesus out. That's not what happened. Jesus had just been commissioned by the Father as Messiah of Israel. His ministry had finally begun. What was his first act? He sought out Satan to go head to head with him. Why? Why? It's all one big story, folks. The Son of God had been waiting since Eden for this time. Satan had defied God's creation when he tempted Adam and Eve, and they sinned. Paul understood. What did Paul call the Messiah? The Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, the redeemer. He called him all of those things. But look what he called him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who is that? Jesus, a life-giving spirit after he was ordained by baptism to his ministry, after he was set apart for this holy work, what was his first act? Satan, where are you? The second Adam is here. It's like Luke is writing this right after Genesis 3. He was on a mission. He began his ministry with the a fastest a sign of deep commitment to what lay before him. He began his ministry by looking for Satan to do battle. Here's the mighty warrior of heaven walking purposely and courageously into the enemy's backyard, into the enemy's kingdom. I'm here in the flesh, Satan. Just like Adam, I'm a man. Your rule is coming to an end. Well, wow. he confronted Satan. The being who had brought rebellion and darkness and evil to God's creation. We're almost there. So what did Satan say to Jesus? In Luke 4, 5, and 7, it's on your scripture sheet. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms. Remember, the kingdoms are his. He's the God of this world. And the devil took him up. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. And he said to him. To you I will give all this authority. And their glory. For it's been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. That's what saved. Can you imagine the arrogance? I'll give it to you. If you then. Will worship me. It will be yours. You want these people? You can have them. Just do it my way. Bow down to me. Follow me. Acknowledge my lordship. And I'll give you the world. Satan is called in scripture the god of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The prince of this world. And Jesus did not answer Satan by saying, They're not yours to give. He didn't say that. Jesus, I'll give you the people you're seeking. I'll give you the kingdom you're seeking. Just do it my way. But the Father was calling him to a cross. To establish a kingdom by way of being a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, in the incarnation had invaded Satan's territory. A territory claimed by Satan. So, all the kingdoms of the world are marked by rebellion against God, no matter who they are. All the kingdoms of this world are inextricably entwined with the rule of Satan. So where does it end? Now, we've come to the last end. So if you've been asleep, wake up. Now, this is really short, but you've got to see this. The third point is the kingdom of the world. Has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I'm going to read it again. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And Satan didn't give it to him. What happens when one king conquers another king in his kingdom? What happens? The kingdom of the conquered king becomes the kingdom of the conquering king. If I come, you're a king. And I'm a king, and I conquer you. Your kingdom's mine. It's all one story, folks. Revelation eleven fifteen is Jesus' answer to the temptation by Satan. That's how Jesus answered him. Satan, I will have your kingdom. But it won't be by submitting to your will. It won't be by submitting to you. I will establish my kingdom through the power of my word. I'll establish my kingdom through the power and atoning death of a cross. I'll establish my kingdom through my resurrection. I will establish my kingdom by the power of my spirit. I will establish my kingdom throughout your territory by the power of my word, Satan. all over your kingdom. And then when I return, your kingdom will be mine. People know this, know this. When you see headlines like we saw this week, You can say, Jesus is coming. His reign will be made manifest in the kingdom of this world. Has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There's only one thing left to do and that's saying, crown him with many crowns.